Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. I'm Dr. John, and in each episode, I either tell you everything you need to know about a bird species or interview an exciting guest. Today, I'm recording from First Landing State Park in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, I've recorded here a lot. I love this little neck of the woods here. Um, It is in the middle of Virginia Beach, though, so... I apologize if there's any city noises or jets flying over or anything like that. And hopefully we may hear the subject of today's episode, the Eastern Towhee. And we'll also be talking about its western counterpart, the Spotted Towhee. The idea for this episode comes from listener Steve Grow, who's a high school photography teacher out in Ohio. And send in some really amazing bird photos that you can find on Dirty Bird Podcast Instagram page. Shout out to Steve, or I guess I should call him Mr. Grow since he's a teacher. Um, shout out to him and all his photography students. Speaking of shout outs, you might notice that this episode is number 49. We're coming up on 50 episodes, y'all. This is a pretty big milestone, and I'd like to celebrate it with all y'all, uh, my loyal listeners. I'm very, very thankful for you. I would really appreciate it if you could send me some messages on email, dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com, or on Instagram, or even better yet, leave like a voice memo. You can mention your favorite episode, just give the show a shout out, or just talk about some cool birding experience you had. I plan on reading and playing some of these messages during my 50th episode. Also, if you have an iPhone, if you know someone who has an iPhone, even if you see some random person with an iPhone walking down the street, grab that iPhone out of their hands, go to Apple Podcasts, and leave a review for Dirty Bird Podcasts. Uh, Disclaimer, I'm not responsible for any criminal charges you might incur while doing this, but seriously, y'all, please leave me some love with reviews to celebrate 50 freaking episodes. All right, on with the show. Totally all about Tohees. So first, let's talk about the name Tohi. Um, Tohi is an onomatopoeic name um, that comes from the Tohi's call. The eastern Tohi often gets nicknamed Chawink due to its call. And John James Audubon, uh, when he wrote about the Eastern Tohi, he often called it the Tohi Bunting. And we'll kind of find out the reason for that later. The scientific name for the Eastern Tohi is Pipilo erythropthalmus. And the spotted Tohi scientific name is Pipilo maculatus. These scientific names aren't particularly exciting or creative. Um, Pipilo comes from the Latin word pipillary, uh, meaning to chirp. Um, both species names just describe physical characteristics about the birds. The eastern tohees, erythropthalmus, means red eye, um, in a reference to its red eye. And the spotted tohees, maculates, means marked with spots, in reference to the spotted tohees spots. <laughs> There's two interesting facts here, though. Um, if you're an avid dirty bird listener, um, you may recognize the species name erythropthalmus from my cuckoo episode, um, because the black-billed cuckoo also had the same species name in reference to its striking red eye, um, which is a great field mark for the bird, much better than its black bill. 
Um, in researching the meaning of the word maculates, um, I found out it's kind of a double connotation. Um, it does mean marked with spots, but it can also mean soiled or dirty, um, specifically as like an adjective referring to someone's character as being immoral or impure. Like you would say, you know, they're marked with spots, like their, their character is, is impure. Um, so maybe the species name for the spotted towhee isn't as innocent as it first appears. Uh, maybe they are dirty little birds. The genus Pipillo contains four living species, our spotted towhee and eastern towhee, and also the green-tailed towhee and the collared towhee. The genus also contains one extinct species called the Bermuda towhee, uh, which is only known from fossils and historical accounts. It likely went extinct in the 1600s following European colonization of the island and the introduction of invasive species. We're going to talk about it uh, a lot more later on in the uh, evolution section of the show. You might notice I didn't mention a couple other North American towhee species when talking about the Papillo genus. Um, like I said, I'll get into the evolution a little later, um, but I thought that this fact was worth pointing out early. Not all towhees are necessarily really closely related. Um, in fact, the sister group to the Papillo genus is actually a group of birds called brush finches that are mainly found in the mountainous forests of Mexico, Central America, and South America. Other towhees, such as Albert's towhee, California towhee, Canyon towhee, they're still related to the Papillo genus of towhees, but not as closely related as the brush finches. Um, like I said, more on that later. So, you know, just because, you know, they all have the common name towhee, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that they're direct descendants of each other. A lot of leaves falling down right now. I do love, you know, recording out here. Right now I'm kind of like sitting right in the middle of a, you know, cypress swamp. Uh, we haven't had a lot of rain, so it's pretty dry. I'm kind of able to sit amongst, you know, all the cypress knees that are poking up. Um, ground's a little squishy. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, the cypress trees and the other deciduous trees around here are dropping a lot of leaves. So it's very pretty. Nice fall day. So to describe these birds, um, the spotted towhee and the eastern towhee are closely related and look very similar. In fact, they were once considered the same species and were referred to as the rufous-sided towhee. But in 1995, they were split into two species. They're fairly large, sparrow-like birds. They got chunky, round bodies, thick bills, and long tails. The eastern towhee male has a black head and back, black wings, and a black tail. The undersides and tips of its tail, though, are flecked with white, and it has white bars on its wings. Its sides are a rich, rusty red color, and its breast is white flecked with that rusty red. The female eastern towhee, um, the coloring is the same, except that the black is all replaced with brown. Both male and females will occasionally flare up a little mohawk of feathers on the back of their head when they're excited. Um, you'll especially notice the male do this while singing from his perch. Um, the male really is, you know, the black with the white and the rusty red. It's, it's very striking, very beautiful. Um, some of my favorite memories of these birds are in West Virginia, in the snow. Um, you know, they're ground-feeding birds, um, as we'll talk about. So you'll see them hopping around underneath a feeder or something or amongst the uh, bushes. And, you know, it's snow, so they're leaving all these little little footprints that are kind of <laughs> cool to look at. And... Um, I think just because they feed on the ground and they're bumping into, you know, brush a lot, like a lot of snow gets on them. So I just remember these birds in the winter, like, you know, that it's got that striking black on the top, but then it's like got, you know, piles of snow also on it that, you know, it's just kind of like, nah, whatever. Um, and uh, it just really makes a great contrast and uh, a, a very pretty bird to uh, brighten up your winter time. The spotted towhee looks a lot like its eastern counterpart, except the wings, true to its name, have white spots on them. It looks like someone flicked white paint onto the wings actually when you look at it. Um, from pictures I've been looking at and my own limited experience seeing um, both the eastern towhee and the spotted towhee in the wild, um, the spotted towhee seems to be a little less boldly colored than the eastern towhee. Um, like of course, you know, breeding season it's, it's you know, got some pretty bold colors, but um, uh, 
like a, a lot of pictures I saw of the spotted towhee, it, it looked like its colors were maybe just like a little bit faded. Um, I kind of have a theory on that that I'll, I'll talk about a little later. Um, both eastern and spotted towhees have a very distinctive red eye. Uh, this isn't a hard and fast rule, though. There's actually a few subspecies of the eastern towhee with lighter eye colors. Uh, one with the subspecies name Aleni is confined to the southern part of Florida, and it has straw yellow eyes. There's also two other eastern towhee subspecies that occur from Virginia down to Louisiana and have varying shades of lighter eye colors. So in summary, the more south you go, the lighter the eyes become for the eastern towhee. If you're in Georgia and you see a yellow-eyed towhee, don't get too excited. If you see a light-eyed spotted towhee, though, that's a different story. There's been white-eyed spotted towhees seen in Nebraska, um, but it's a much more rare mutation in the spotted towhee than it is in the eastern towhee. Usually, spotted towhees have that distinctive red eye. Uh, one big disclaimer, um, though, is if the bird is a juvenile, um, all this goes out the window because juveniles spotted and eastern towhees have pale eyes that turn orange and then eventually red during their first winter. So that can also be a way you can kind of tell a juvenile bird, um, you know, if you're in one of the areas where the spotted and eastern towhee adults have red eyes and you see one with a lighter eye color, you're probably like assured that that's, you know, in its first year. The eastern towhee's range, true to its name, is the eastern U.S., um, from the Midwest to the Atlantic coast. Its range extends south into Texas and north into the very southern part of Canada. Virginia is roughly the migratory line of the species. Birds north of Virginia tend to migrate south for the winter, while those south of Virginia usually stay put year-round. Honestly, the spotted towhee might as well be called the western towhee um, because basically it covers the western portion of the U.S. where the eastern towhee is absent. It also has populations that stretch down into Mexico. Populations of spotted towhee in Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, and Canada are migratory while the rest of the population is year-round. There is a bit of a hybrid zone between the spotted towhee and the eastern towhee um, that's in like Nebraska and Colorado. Both the eastern and spotted towhees are ground feeding birds and they prefer living in locations that have low plant cover to protect them. Habitats with lots of thickets, shrubs, and vines are ideal. And at least with the eastern towhee, they seem to not mind if this shrub cover is native or non-native plant species. A study in 2020 conducted in forest patches surrounded by urban areas in southern Pennsylvania and northern Delaware found higher towhee breeding densities in areas with more non-native shrub species. One explanation for this is that the non-native shrubs don't have any native insects, animals, or diseases to inhibit their growth. So the non-native shrubs tend to be bigger and bushier and just better habitat for the towhees. Eastern towhees don't like too much urbanization, though. I found a study out of Front Royal, Virginia from 2011 that examined bird species in the surrounding Jefferson National Forest compared to bird species present in the ex-urban areas of Front Royal. An ex-urban area is one where native forest plant life, especially understory, is cut back to make room for buildings, usually housing complexes. These ex-urban areas, though, tend to retain many of the large, mature trees, um, though, um, and it creates a canopy similar to that of, you know, the forest that was there before. It's just that the understory and, you know, all the leaves and dead logs and all that stuff is gone. But even though it still retains that forest canopy, the composition of the bird life is much different. The eastern toby is actually an indicator species of this altered environment, being found much more in natural forests than urbanized areas. So if you're hearing a bunch of eastern towhees chirwinking around where you are, it's likely an indicator that human urbanization hasn't gone too far overboard. Take this with a grain of salt, though. Remember, the eastern towhees are technically a generalist species. They thrive on forest edges, um, and a study in the upper Piedmont and Blue Ridge counties of South Carolina found that eastern towhees were much more resilient to human incursions than more specialist species like Swainson's warbler. I found another study, a very similar one, out of Seattle, Washington, that basically looked at the same thing, except uh, looking at spotted towhees instead of eastern towhees. 
Um, and they found that spotted towhee numbers um, unsurprisingly decrease with increasing levels of urbanization. So towhees are tolerant of humans, like they kind of like the forest edges that, you know, we create a lot of times with parks and, you know, suburbs and stuff. But, you know, there's a limit. And, and once we kind of pass it with development, the eastern and spotted towhees are piecing out. Eastern towhees tend to have a core territory that they reside in, especially during the breeding season. They tend to not move more than 100 meters or 300 feet in a day. However, it's not too uncommon for them to make longer trips, sometimes up to a mile. Eastern towhee males seem to be a little greedy and tend to defend a territory larger than that strictly required to provide food. Um, I remember this state park in um, West Virginia uh, that I used to frequent a lot to bird watch. And it was really cool because, like, there were kind of, like, paths that divided up these, you know, overgrown, like, thickets and stuff like that. And you could literally, like, figure out the different towhee, um, you know, territory, especially in the spring. Because, like, there'd be one male in this thicket singing and then another male in another thicket. And, you know, sometimes you'd see them fight a little bit. Um, so, yeah, basically, they kind of hold on to that territory. They don't move around too much. They will they will kind of make some forays. And then, like, surprisingly, they'll just try to hold on to, like, more land than they actually need. Um, you know, uh, they're like, nah, I, I want lots of food. Uh, compared to eastern towhees, the spotted towhee habitat is much drier. I mean, you know, it's the western U.S. It's just a much drier, sunnier place. That um, softer black and orange plumage on the spotted towhee I was, I was talking about, um, it's thought to help it blend in with the more, like, dusty soil type that's usually out in the west. Um, and its white wing spots are actually thought to mimic sunlight filtering through thickets. Since they're in more drier areas, um, spotted towhee, their habitat preference relies a lot more on access to water sources. A study conducted in Vancouver in 2003 found higher numbers of spotted towhees in areas with freshwater access and berry bushes. And just like the eastern towhees, the spotted towhees tend to, you know, stay in one territory but will make longer forays also. All right, one last very random fact about towhee habitat. The microbiome of towhee cloaca is unique to their home range. Um, do I have to reiterate what a cloaca is again? It's one hole that does three things. Um, I'll leave it at that. Um, in Portland, Oregon, researchers for some reason went around sticking swabs up female spotted towhees cloaca and seeing which bacteria popped up. They found that individuals captured in the same park had similar microbiomes, um, distinctly different from females in neighboring parks. So that's like <laughs> kind of cool, I guess, is that, you know, your cloacal microbiome is unique to, you know, your, your area that you live. Um, another interesting thing they found is parks that were more heavily used by humans and dogs uh, were associated with more diversity of bacteria cloaca in the towhees that lived there. Uh, don't ask me how the bacteria got from humans to birds' cloacas. <laughs> that's, uh, that's beyond the scope of this show. All right, let's move on and talk about these birds' very distinctive and super fun to listen to vocalizations. Even if you don't have, like, an ear for bird songs, the eastern towhee and the spotted towhee are super easy ones to learn, and, you know, once you got it down, you'll be able to recognize it. The male uses its song to attract mates and to build up their pair bond, um, as well as defend their territory. Like many other songbirds, the song nuclei in the male towhee's brain is larger in the spring than in the winter, in preparation for all the singing he'll be doing. The eastern towhee song is described as, drink your tea, and is usually performed from an elevated perch. You'll notice that the song is like very structured. There's the drink here, followed by a complex trill. I found a cool study out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina by this guy, Douglas Richards. Um, he experimented with different pieces of towhee song and found that the initial drink here part likely serves as an auditory cue, basically telling the other towhees, hey, listen up, before they give their complex trill. Since that trill is like, 
you know, very complex and, and can vary a lot. Um, it's thought to carry most of the information about, you know, what the male tohi is singing about to defend his territory. The drink here is just kind of like a, hear ye, hear ye, you know, like it doesn't carry the information. It's, it's the trill that has everything. Pairs also have back and forth communication with each other, um, kind of just telling, you know, hey, I'm over here, you're over there, okay. Um, also, they use it to alert um, for predators, um, and they just use it to continue to foster that pair bond. You know, a couple's got to talk to each other to, you know, keep things going. Spotted towhees have a similar song, um, but with some different inflections. It sings a bit quicker, um, and to me it says, drink, drink tea. Also, the spotted towhee call is a lot different. It's not the chawink of the eastern towhee. It's more like a harsh mew. Really, that call reminds me of like a blue-gray catbird a lot. I found an experiment from 1979 where a researcher raised a male eastern towhee in a soundproof isolation chamber to see what effect it would have on its singing. If you want to learn more about like how, you know, songbirds learn their songs and everything like that, check out my Song Sparrow episode. Um, I kind of go into that a lot. Um... It differs among species, of course, but usually, basically, uh, birds are born with like an innate singing blueprint, um, but it's further refined when the bird listens to others sing. And this experiment really illustrated this perfectly. Um, the eastern male towhee that was raised in isolation was able to produce the echoes of the first two syllables of the typical male towhee song. Like, he could do the drinkier part, but he sang them much slower and... There's much more variability to it. Um, it never really added that trill, the T part at the end, um, showing that this part of the song must be learned from other males. And that kind of reinforces the theory that the drink gear part is, you know, that like, hey, listen to me. And then that trill is like the very complex, like, yeah, this is my territory. Don't come in here. I'm going to fuck you up if you come near here. Get away. <laughs> or like to a female, hey, you know, I'm a big, strong male. Come mate with me. <laughs> Um, all right. <laughs> um, I hope no one, luckily I'm kind of off the path right now, but like, I, I always wonder when I'm out here recording in the middle of the woods, like if somebody walks by and just sees me like laughing to myself in a microphone, like <laughs> what they think is going on. Um, I have noticed this variability of the Tohi songs, um, when I listen to them in the wild also. Um, sometimes male Tohis will combine their chawink call into their song. supporting that even more that the you know t portion is the you know most important part of the song is uh, a study by richards in 1981 that found that the t varies a lot between individuals um, and is likely used also for individual recognition like two males in adjacent territories are going to have very different like t portions to their song so that you know hey that's you know that's bob over there you know that's jimbo with his you know, tea trill. <laughs> why, why are all my Eastern towhees like super Southern? I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, to demonstrate this, um, take a listen to this Eastern towhee song that has a lot of flair on the tea portion. Tohees can learn songs from other birds, too. Uh, they're generally not considered to be mimics of other bird species the way, like, mockingbirds, thrashers, and catbirds are. Uh, they do have some ability to pick up other bird songs. Eastern towhees have been observed imitating the calls of blue jays, robins, carolina wrens, and brown thrashers. It's unclear what the purpose of this mimicry was. I found one article from the Auk that proposed that these atypical songs could be used for males to recognize a distinctive neighboring rival. Um, I didn't find any studies proving that. Uh, 
But I guess maybe it's like, yeah, that's Bob. He likes to mimic mockingbirds, whatever. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the feeding of these birds. Both spotted in eastern towhees forage in similar manners. They're ground feeders, um, but rather than walking like a crow, they hop from spot to spot, sometimes using short wing flaps to propel them. A lot of these hops are accompanied by kind of a scratchy kick at the dirt and the leaf litter that is used to expose bugs underneath it. Um, I love watching these guys like when they're feeding. Basically, it looks like they're just like grabbing a handful of leaves and just throwing it behind them like a dog digging a hole. And it's a pretty powerful kick too. Um, I found an experiment that calculated the spotted he can scratch a depression of 3.5 centimeters with one of its kicks. And like by far, they are the strongest scratchers um, in the sparrow family. I found a study out of William & Mary um, in Williamsburg, Virginia, go Griffins, uh, that put different American sparrows head to head in a scratching contest. This was an epic scratch off for the ages, and unsurprisingly, the eastern towhee came out on top easily beating out song sparrows, savannah sparrows, and white-throated sparrows. I would love to see, like, you know, this done with other birds, too. Like, maybe woodpeckers, like, have, like, a peck-off. The, the ultimate peck-off. <laughs> I feel like the pileated would probably win that pretty easily, but... <laughs> um, this feeding behavior, though, results in some unexpected consequences. Uh, when it comes to bird banding, spotted towhees put an incredible amount of strain on their leg bands and result in them degrading much faster than in many other bird species. Just all that hopping, scratching, and messing in the leaf litter erodes away at the leg bands. And you know, this can have pretty benign consequences like scratching off a serial number or the band simply snapping off, but sometimes it's a bit more serious like they erode the band so much that they produce a sharp edge on it and then it injures their legs. As far as what these guys are eating, um, they do eat seeds and grain, um, berries, acorns, um, but really bugs are their preferred food source, um, especially calcium-rich bugs like snails, pill bugs, and roly-polies. The female needs these especially to help her form eggshells, um, you know, during the breeding season. And actually, eastern towhee territory densities are positively correlated with the abundance of calcium-rich prey. So the more roly-polies, the more eastern towhees. They don't eat much aquatic prey. Um, this is reinforced by a study on the Willamette River in western Oregon, where spotted towhees were found to have low mercury levels. Um, as you know, listening to the show, birds that eat a lot of aquatic prey often have high mercury levels. Thanks, pollution! Towhees avoid this, though, because they're not poking around in stream. They are looking under leaves for their food. Cicada eruptions benefit towhees a lot, um, the same way they do a lot of bird species. Uh, a study out of the University of Maryland looked at population numbers of eastern towhees um, during eruptions of the 17-year cicada brood number 10 in 1970, 1987, and 2004, and found that eastern towhee populations increased in the year following each emergence. And it's not just bugs and seeds, uh, towhees apparently... Whoa. I think the military base is uh, firing off some artillery. Hopefully they're not doing any swamp exercises uh, anyway. <laughs> um, apparently towhees aren't above predating on nests. I found a report out of central Massachusetts of a female eastern towhee caught in the act pecking and consuming a house sparrow egg. Um, I mean, house sparrows are invasive species. I don't really feel too bad, but... You know, we think of these little birds as just, you know, eating bugs and seeds and stuff. And so, you know, when they're just drinking the yolk of another bird, like, um, it's a little bit, uh, I don't know, terrifying. Uh, it just reminds us that they're, they're little dinosaurs. In the non-breeding season, both eastern towhees and spotted towhees increase the amount of seeds and grain in their diet. You know, it's cold, bugs are less active, and the birds just have to adapt. They do eat berries, acorns, and seeds during the summer too, but bugs are their preferred food source. Alright, we talked about the feeding, now time for towhee breeding. Towhees have mainly monogamous pairs during a breeding season, and they may even stay together year after year. However, divorce does happen. 
A study in the forest near Seattle, Washington, found six spotted towhee pairs with new mates from one year to the next. This is compared to 14 other pairs that stayed together. Now, you may think this means, you know, six out of 14, 30% of all spotted towhee marriages end in divorce. Um, but, you know, there were other birds that, like, they couldn't confirm whether they had the same mate or, or it was suspected that their mate had died and so then they found a new mate. Um, so the actual rate of divorce is probably lower than 30%, but, you know, it does happen year to year. And I couldn't find any statistics on, like, extra pair paternity in spotted and eastern towhees. Um, most songbirds, it hovers around, you know, 10%. So I think it's safe to say, you know, probably 10%, you know, they're sneaking around and, and having some extra babies. But <laughs> um, but generally, they're monogamous. And, you know, if you see one pair, you know, year after year, you know, it very well could be the same two that just stay together in their same territory year after year. Tohees will attempt for two broods in a season, sometimes three, um, especially if it's, you know, more southern area or if the nest is destroyed early on. They wait at least a week between their young fledging from, you know, one nest before they start their next nest. They build cup-shaped nests that are either close to the ground or on the ground itself. Spotted tohees seem to be a bit more willing to build their nests higher up and have even placed them as high as 100 feet. Both species build similar nests. It's cup-shaped and woven from twigs, leaves, and bark, and then lined with soft grasses, animal hair, and pine needles. In the eastern towhee, the female does all the nest building. Um, it's unclear in the spotted towhee who does all the nest work, but I'm guessing it's the female also. Both species lay two to six eggs, and they have a similar two-week incubation period and two-week nestling period. Eastern towhees time the start of their first brood with the emergence of ground-covering plants in the spring, as this fosters environments for the insects they need to feed on. The female does most of the breeding because the female does most of the brooding because she's the one with the brooding patch. Um, you know, from listening to this show, brooding patches is kind of like a bare area um, on you know the lower chest of birds that they can do direct skin-to-egg contact um, to help keep the eggs warm. Although male eastern towhees um, have also been observed brooding, they don't have that brooding patch, so they're just less efficient. They're not the best at recognizing their own babies. Um, eastern towhees have been observed feeding the young of field sparrows, wood thrushes, northern mockingbirds, and house finches, uh, presumably because it mistook it for its own young. Um, they've even been observed tidying up the nests of other birds, um, for example, an eastern towhee in Newark, Delaware. Um, was observed regularly removing fecal sacs from a wood thrush nest. Uh, basically, he was volunteering free diaper changes for the birds. Speaking of fecal sacs, spotted towhees have a bit of a gross way of dealing with them. They eat them. <laughs> this isn't unique to spotted towhees. Uh, other birds do it too, um, and spotted towhees don't do it all the time. Uh, one study I found observed 40% of male spotted towhees um, ate the fecal sacs instead of just flying away with them for disposal. Um, interestingly, it seems that many birds, uh, not just towhees, uh, do this uh, not only to tidy up the nest, but to avoid attract and to avoid attracting predators, uh, but also to gain extra nutrients. <laughs> it's a little gross, um, but apparently, you know, the nestlings, their digestive system isn't super efficient, so you know they're just shitting out a lot of nutrients, and so the parents are like. I'm already stressed out trying to feed these little things, so I guess I'll eat their poop. <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> think about that next time you change a diaper with some cord in it. Oh, God. Uh, that's a terrible image. Oh, no. Moving on. Fledglings will molt before the winter. Uh, they attain most of their adult plumage, uh, except for the wings and tail, where they keep their fledgling feathers. Come next fall, the towhee will then undergo the annual fall molt and attain its full adult plumage. So if you see a male towhee with brown wings and tail, it means he's just still in his first year of life. Since females are already brown, it's pretty difficult to tell like whether they have juvenile feathers or not. Um, so this is really only a rule you can use with the males. I found a really cool case of an eastern towhee exhibiting bilateral gynandromorphism in Rhode Island in 2017. Uh, I've talked about gynandromorphism before on the show in my cardinal episode, 
Uh, I go into like all the nitty gritty science um, in that episode, like all the genes and chromosomes and that kind of stuff. Uh, basically, it's a rare condition in birds, uh, but much more prevalent in insects, where the bird's body appears to be split down the midline, one half female, one half male. Usually, the female side is on the left, and the genitalia will also match up with ovaries on the left and testes on the right. Super bizarre. Um, in this case, though, a towhee was observed in Exeter, Rhode Island, with female plumage on the right side and male plumage on the left. This towhee was seen associating with three fledgling towhees and an adult male towhee. The gynantromorph definitely had some kind of relationship with the fledglings as it was observed feeding them. Um, its role in this family is a little murky, though. Unfortunately, the researchers were unable to capture any of the birds, you know, that they were observing here. So they weren't able to, like, sample their DNA and, like, see if these fledgings were offspring of the gynandromorph. But usually gynandromorphs are infertile, you know? Like, things don't really work out when you have one ovary and one testy. Um, so they assumed that probably the mother had died and then the gynandromorph kind of came in and took over a motherly role. But, I mean, who really knows, like, what was going on here? Like, what was going through the, you know, male towhee's head when, like, you know, there's a half male who, you know, he would be fighting a male, and then a half female who he's like, oh, like, I want to mate with and, and raise a family with. Like, definitely an interesting situation. Um, this guy in Antromorph was also observed singing typical male towhee songs, uh, along with some more abnormal variations so its role here is like really poorly understood, whether it was like acting more as the mother or whether it was like acting as a part male and helping to sing to defend the territory too. Like just super cool. Keep y'all's eyes peeled for gynandromorphs. If you see one, you know, document, 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 because you will definitely, you know, be published in some ornithology paper with those kind of field notes. All right, y'all, we're getting into the tail end of the show, uh, pun intended, of course, um, where I'm going to talk about the evolution of towhees, and then also I'll talk about, like, their population numbers, you know, causes of predation and disease and death, and uh, kind of wrap up the show there. So as far as the evolution, um, I kind of hinted at this earlier, uh, but towhees are part of the sparrow family. Um, in my song sparrow episode, I talked about sparrow evolution, uh, and also my cardinal episode, um, you know, cardinals are, are in this family too. So I won't belabor all the points here. Uh, but just to summarize, sparrows first evolved in the old world after their Aussie ancestor first left Proto-Papa New Guinea around 43 million years ago. Um, then the ancestors of the superfamily Emberizoidae that forms buntings, cardinals, and New World warblers and New World sparrows crossed over Beringia into North America about 23 million years ago. Compared to their old world relatives, the Emberizoidae superfamily is notable for having nine primary feathers on each wing instead of ten. The New World Sparrow family, Passerellidae, contains sparrows, towhees, brush finches, brush tanagers, and juncos that are all grouped into eight related clades. As I mentioned near the beginning of the show, um, just because two species have towhee in their name doesn't mean they're necessarily, like, you know, super closely related. Uh, just whoever gave them their common names thought that they looked similar. Our spotted and eastern towhees in their genus Pipolo belong to a clade that contains the Atlapetus genus, which, as I mentioned earlier, contains the brush finches and is a sister species to our Pipolo towhees. So where do other towhees, like the canyon towhee and the genus Melozone, factor into all this? They're not too far off they aren't a sister clade. Interestingly, these two clades are also sister to a clade that contains a bunch of small-bodied sparrows, like the song sparrow, grasshopper sparrow, and savanna sparrow. The pipolo towhees are generally separated into two groups, the brown towhees and the rufous-sided towhees. The spotted and eastern towhee are in the rufous-sided group, along with the collared towhee and the green-tailed towhee. Genetic data sort of backs this up. Um, there's so many towhee and sparrow species that the genetics can get a little bit messy, um, especially for me, you know, sorting through papers. Um, so like all my episodes, you know, take this all with a grain of salt. 
But the genetics does seem to agree that the Rufus sided towhees are all closely related. The collared and the green-tailed towhee are especially close, and the spotted and eastern towhee are also likewise closely related. I really couldn't find anything about, you know, where the Rufus sided towhees are most likely to have first evolved, um, or which species came first, but based on what I've read, here's my hypothesis. I did find a couple studies about the genetics of the brown towhees, um, and it suggested that the brown towhees, which, remember, are in the same genus as our rufous-sided towhees, Pipillo, um, that the brown towhees first evolved in Mexico. Three out of four of our rufous-sided towhees are also found in Mexico, the spotted, the collared, and the green-tailed. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the ancestor to our rufous-sided towhee also evolved in Mexico or, you know, southwestern America. It then split into two species, one that would eventually go on to further differentiate into the green-tailed towhee and collared towhee, the other species a ground-feeding specialist with strong legs to sweep back leaves and reveal bugs, spread across America. Then during glaciation events, the eastern and western populations of this ground-feeding specialist became increasingly separated until they formed the spotted and eastern towhee. One Zoom Tree of Life has a split occurring about 500,000 years ago. Um, I also saw estimates saying it could have occurred during the last glacial maximum about 30,000 years ago. You know, the glaciers retreated and advanced multiple times um, across America, so there were multiple scenarios where this split could have happened. The evolution doesn't end there, though. As promised, let me talk about the Bermuda towhee. Um, this will be a bit of a tangent, but man, this thing is interesting. The extinct Bermuda towhee we talked about in the beginning of the show was the eastern towhee's closest relative, likely evolving when some eastern towhees made it to Bermuda and stayed put to become their own species. It's really sad this guy went extinct. I mean, you know, of course it's sad when any animal goes extinct, but looking at the fossil record, the Bermuda towhee was a pretty tenacious guy. Its fossils are more abundant than any other passeriformis bird on the island, and date back to the middle Pleistocene, roughly 400,000 years ago. Throughout those hundreds of thousands of years, the Bermuda towhee survived four interglacial periods that put severe stress on the environment of Bermuda. At some points, the Bermuda islands were reduced to little more than tiny islets barely poking above the water. But the Bermuda towhee adapted to its island environment. With the lack of the mammalian predators that were present on the mainland, it adopted a heavier body type with shorter wings. Its legs were also stronger, showing it spent much more time on the ground than its mainland sibling. The Bermuda towhee also has an interesting scientific name. Its scientific name is Papilio naufragium. Naufragium means shipwreck. It combines the Latin word navis for ship and fringo, meaning to break. This is an allusion to the original eastern towhee colonists of Bermuda, which were likely blown to the island during a strong storm or hurricane. They were basically shipwrecked on the island, and over hundreds of thousands of years formed their own species. Well, that is until the European colonists showed up and sunk their entire species. Speaking of shipwrecks and colonists, in 1610, a ship called the Sea Venture wrecked on the then-uninhabited island of Bermuda after being caught in a hurricane on its way to Virginia. On board was English writer Williams Strachey, who described the Bermuda towhee as fat and plump like a bunting. Strachey eventually would send an account of his shipwreck experiences back to England, where it would be read by one William Shakespeare, and is thought to have inspired his final play, The Tempest. By the time William Strachey was marooned on the island, though, the Bermuda towhee was likely already in decline. Passing Spanish ships had seeded the island with wild hogs that destroyed much of the underbrush towhees love. With more colonists came rats and cats, the two harbingers of extinction for so many birds. So, a little bit more on our spotted and eastern towhees. Um, the spotted towhee has been observed hybridizing with the collared towhee in Mexico. Um, remember, the collared towhee isn't, you know, too far off from the spotted towhee in the evolutionary tree. 
Um, and then another mention, uh, remember in the beginning of the show when I was talking about eye color, I was talking about there's some subpopulations of eastern towhee, um, three subpopulations, uh, really. Um, there's the white-eyed towhees of Florida, the red-eyed towhee that's pretty much everywhere else, and then like a population that's on the border between the two ranges that has eye colors that range from orange to yellow. I read a paper where they looked at the genetics of these different subpopulations with, you know, the different eye colors. And it suggested that the eye colors evolved from different populations being isolated in refugia during some of the glacial ebb and flow in America. And this is thought to have occurred super recently, like possibly as early as the last glacial maximum 18 to 20,000 years ago. I couldn't find, like, which came first, the red or the yellow eyes. I'm pretty sure it's the red eyes, since, you know, the spotted toe, he also has red eyes, so um, it would just make sense. And then, like, you know, some red-eyed toehees got isolated, and, you know, whatever females that were there, like, were like, hmm, we like lighter eye colors, actually. So then they started selecting for that, and, you know, now we got these Florida birds with their <laughs> yellow eyes. All right, um, that's enough of my attempts to describe <laughs> Tohi evolution. Um, let's wrap up the show. We'll talk about the population numbers of these birds, about some predators, parasites, diseases, and stuff. The eastern and spotted Tohis, um, being ground-feeding birds that also nest close to the ground, are very prone to predation by predators, both mammalian and reptilian. Nests of Tohis particularly have a really bad survival rate, uh, I read a study conducted on the Savannah River in South Carolina, and out of 10 eastern towhee nests that were monitored, only one fledged young. Parasitism by the brown-headed cowbirds contributes a lot to these nest failures, but really the main problem was predators. The researchers kept finding their study nests destroyed by some hungry critter. A study done in the Mississippi Alluvial Valley found eastern towhee nests had a 28% survival rate through a breeding season. Um, surprisingly, this was actually good compared to some other birds in the research area, like the blue-gray gnatcatcher, which only has an 18% nest survival rate. Oh, God, that hurts my heart. Um, brown-headed cowbirds also parasitize spotted towhees, too. Uh, a study in Sacramento Valley of California found 38% of nests studied were parasitized by the brown-headed cowbird. This study also found nests were uh, preyed upon by scrub jays, hawks, rats, raccoons, and snakes. Their, um, you know, oldest known towhees, like, it's pretty much on par with other songbirds of their size. Like, you know, 10 years is usually, like, you know, the longest for, for songbirds. And the oldest known eastern towhee was 9 years old when it was caught in South Carolina in 1946. The oldest known spotted towhee was 11 years old, and he was caught in California in 2010. Um, like a lot of birds, uh, people may not know this, but birds get ticks, um, and eastern towhees in particular get a lot of ticks uh, because they feed on the ground. Um, there's a few ticks that actually leave us humans alone, but parasitize on towhees, such as Ixodes affinis. Um, Ixodes affinis is related to Ixodes scapularis, which you've probably heard of, the deer tick, um, infamous for transmitting Lyme disease. Unfortunately, its cousin Ixodes affinis also can transmit Lyme disease, um, and this isn't good for anybody, bird or human. Apparently, Ixodes affinis and scapularis actually act synergistically to amplify the spread and maintenance of Lyme disease infection throughout the ecosystem of the southeastern U.S. So even while affinis can't bite us, um, it's making Lyme disease infection worse for both birds and humans. One spot of good news is eastern towhees have relatively low levels of reservoir competence, for Borrelia burgdorferi, um, that's the microbe that causes Lyme disease. Um, what I mean by reservoir competence is that Borrelia burgdorferi doesn't tend to thrive in eastern towhees. Um, they aren't infected by it as much as some birds, uh, such as the American robin, which apparently is just like a petri dish for Lyme disease. Like Borrelia gets into a robin, it's like, oh yeah, this is my place. I'm gonna have tons of little spirit sheep babies and. Oh yeah, we're getting lime all up in here. Uh, 
Apparently, Tohees, it's not the ideal environment for them, uh, but they're still an important vector in the whole Lyme disease cycle. Eastern Tohees can also be infected with a disease called scaly leg. Um, it's caused by a type of mite called Nemendocles jamaicanesis, um, and it causes the legs to become covered in a hyperkeratotic skin that appears gray, flaking, and it looks pretty damn itchy. I'm terrible as, you know, a child of the 90s, uh, you know, and grew up, you know, came to age in the early two, 2000s. Um, but uh, I heard scaly leg, and all I could think of is, do the scaly leg, do that scaly leg, do the scaly leg. <laughs> uh, obscure uh, hip-hop references. As far as population numbers go, spotted towhee populations are pretty stable, while eastern towhee populations have declined by about 50% since 1966. The current population of spotted towhees is estimated around 40 million, while for eastern towhees, it's 26 million. I find that kind of surprising because, you know, you see eastern towhees everywhere, I feel like. And I mean, 26 million is, you know, a pretty good number, but when you look at the range map, like... You know, eastern towhees, spotted towhees, they're kind of like equal as far as the territory that they hold. But, you know, it's only half. Like, the eastern towhee, their population is really nearly half what the spotted towhee is. Eastern towhee numbers have especially been declining in New England. This is thought to be due to habitat loss and also increased mortality rates. Um, especially females on the nest um, seem to really die off in New England. Part of this is also, you know, the areas that we have protected for wildlife, the stuff we haven't, you know, knocked down and built parking lots on. Um, we have allowed it, I mean, it's great, we've allowed it to become mature forest, but, um, you know, that causes these closed canopies that doesn't support uh, a nice understory that towhees like. So the few areas that we do have protected are, you know, now mature forest, and towhees don't thrive in those areas. And then, you know, fire suppression and everything like that has uh, also not helped their numbers. And while, like, large mature trees make poor towhee habitat, so too does landscape composed of many small sapling trees. I found a study conducted out of Albany, New York, that found areas where black locust tree saplings, which is actually an invasive species to that area. Um, I did not know that. You know, they're native, you know, farther down in the U.S., but invasive um, up north. Um, they were replacing the natural pine scrub oak barrens, um, and there were lots of these uh, saplings of the black locust. And eastern towhee populations declined drastically in that area. There's a jet flying overhead, but there's also a woodpecker knocking away. Speaking of invasive species, cats are just awful for towhees, um, especially for nestlings or fledglings that can't fly away. I found a study done at Springbrook Park in Oregon that found spotted towhees tend to nest along forest edges, uh, but this also creates an ecological trap because prowling cats could easily find the nest. Not all invasive species are bad for towhees, though. A study conducted in Sleepy Creek, West Virginia, sounds like a nice place, Sleepy Creek, um, found that eastern towhee populations increased after an outbreak of gypsy moss caused defoliation of many trees in the area. That defoliation opened up sunlight to the forest floor and fostered many shrubs to grow, such as blackberry and grapevine, which are ideal habitat for towhees. A similar scenario happened in the Great Smoky Mountains, where unfortunately many mature hemlock trees have been destroyed by the woolly adelgid. Other population decline causes for towhees are increased deer population because they eat the forest understory, uh, mature forests replacing successional forests like I, I already talked about. There's also an argument that the populations of eastern towhees are maybe like normalizing, like Maybe they used to be a lot lower, and then we clear-cut a lot of the forest, you know, and that allowed a bunch of understory and underbrush to, to grow, and that caused an explosion of towhee populations. And so the decline we're seeing now is maybe going back to more what the numbers were before, uh, you know, we cut down all these mature forests. Pesticides are also a huge cause for decline. Uh, remember, these birds eat bugs mostly. 
Um, I found a study in Sacramento Valley, California, that found lower spotted towhee survival rates in areas that were being used for cattle grazing. Um, this is probably intuitive too. The cattle are eating, you know, plants that could, you know, go on to form bushes or shrubs that, you know, the towhees would like to hang out in. Towhees, though, are one of the few birds that seem to like loggers. Um, Ludlow Griscom, an avid student of birds in New England, wrote in 1949 that the towhee is the principal species to profit from lumbering, woodcutting, fire, and hurricanes. A study conducted in the Chattahoochee Oconee Forest in Georgia found that eastern towhees are the first birds to return to recently burned forests. So, I mean, this makes sense, you know, like, they profit from natural disasters. There's a big fire, there's a hurricane, it knocks down all these trees. Well, that opens up sunlight to, you know, the understory and fosters all these bushes and, and shrubs and stuff that the towhees just love. And so then they move back in and, you know, bring life back into the to desolation. All right, y'all. Well, that's all I got about towhees. Um... Super common birds, easy to find, so you don't go out and look for these guys, and now, you know, you you know a lot more about them, and maybe you can listen to their call a little more, and maybe recognize an individual bird by that, you know, T-trill that is very unique. Try not to pass on your microbiome to these birds. <laughs> um... And, you know, as always, y'all, please, please, please write in, leave reviews in honor of the 50th episode coming up. Um, I'm very excited for it, and I hope y'all are too. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I'll close out with one more Tohi fact. Uh, apparently, Tohis are notoriously hard to rehabilitate when they're at wildlife rehabilitation centers. Classically, towhees refuse to gape to allow rehabilitators to feed them and don't eat food that's put out for them. <laughs> Adding to this, their beak kind of forms like a frown, so rehabilitators just get really frustrated because it's just this frowning bird that, you know, is injured. They're trying to get it to eat to get better, and it just refuses to eat. It's just like this picky child. Um, and <laughs> I kept stumbling across these, like, wildlife rehabilitators, like, talking, like, oh, the toe like, they're so hard. <laughs> like, they're doing everything in their power to entice this bird to eat. And it's just like, no, I don't like it. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for hanging out with me in First Landing State Park on this nice fall day in the woods. Didn't hear any towhees today. I hope the jets didn't bother you. And as always, stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening.